Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Psychic's Thoughts. It is June, and uh, I think now is a thing, the best time to talk about this, um, because I've never actually made a full episode on it, and for video game culture and history, I I think it's kind of important for us to keep in mind, um, and to kind of understand. And it's a little off the beaten path in terms of the video game stuff I usually talk about, I usually talk about the industry and uh, some of the functioning of it from the consumer standpoint especially but also from behind the scenes to an extent of what I've read and and learned and heard um, and or just specific things about games and franchises because video games is a great love of mine and the industry as a whole is an important one to keep an eye on because it is a rapidly growing and evolving industry that will rival any other large industry and it already is And that influences the other uh, forms of entertainment we all love, between films, television, music, and even books. So, um, with that being said, marketing. Marketing, marketing is important, and this goes for anything. You know, in film, we have trailers, we have um, certain film conventions, and then especially for independent films, more importantly, we have film festivals and independent circuits where you can go and... um, Preview, uh, premiere or preview or um, pitch your film um, so you can potentially network find work and more and it's, it's a vital part of the film industry it's how films are financed it's how films are discovered and then beyond that with the power of the internet and of course with bigger money from larger studios you've got you know, when you have Comic-Con roll around or when you have Disney's event, you get the teasers and the trailers, right? We just had Star Wars Celebration, so we got a crap ton of information about upcoming Star Wars IP across the board, right? Anything to do with Star Wars, video games, books, comics, movie, television. But we got some trailers of some TV series. We got some promises of new film franchises in the works or, or films in general. So it's a vital aspect. And it's a communal one because... It's a shared experience in an auditorium, in a theater, right? Watching a movie in a theater, and I I don't know why people don't understand this, is vital. It's not that it's going to go away, but it's decreasing. And part of that's a pandemic, I understand. But people find the ease and convenience of streaming a film. But I'll tell you this, I love streaming movies, don't get me wrong. I love the accessibility. I think the more people have access to good films and television and, and, and content in general, books as well, and, um, and, and good knowledge, right? Important information in general. The more free, easily accessible and safe conditions that people can have to, to access those, the better for all forms because it allows people to enjoy, it allows people to uh, learn new perspectives, and it allows people to learn. However, movie theaters are still important, and I know they're pricey, right? I know tickets are more expensive because movies are more expensive to make nowadays and because of inflation and numerous other things. But just remember, real quick, and I'll get into the video game part in a minute. When you go into a theater, a movie theater, when you buy a, a, a movie ticket of any kind, any type, um, that movie ticket is the box office gross. That's what pay, that's the initial, that's the money that the movie makes, majority of it, 
right? And then that's that money's split between the, the studio and the execs and the filmmakers, and so on and so forth. Way more than that. It's a very involved process. Then the concessions and some of the other things you may pay for while in the theater, mostly concessions, that goes to the movie theater itself or the chain to keep their operations afloat, which is why popcorn and a bag of M&Ms is so goddamn expensive. And it's unfortunate that that's the best way they can finance themselves because they get a small percentage of the box office revenue. I think they get 10 to 20%. Not enough. It's enough to keep them stable, right? They couldn't just survive off concessions. That would sink them, right? Not enough people buy enough concessions, but they do. They still do. Um, So it's one of those chicken or the egg scenarios. Do you make the concessions couple bucks cheaper on average which is significant because that might increase things if movie tickets were a little more a little less expensive for the standard screenings right a little less expensive and the concessions were fresher right but you have better quality concessions and for a little cheaper I think that would make a huge difference that might help moviegoers but Anyway, my point is, the importance of watching a film in the theater is the experience. There's no distractions, there's no pausing, there's no rewinding. Right, there might be distractions, but there's not, there's not as many. It's not as easy. Your dog may not bark, right? Your doorbell may not go off. You don't have to pause to use the bathroom. You just gotta run and go to the bathroom quickly. <laughs> it's a larger screen format. There's more data and information presented to you. There's a surround sound system that has a higher quality sound system. So unless you're an uber rich person that has this set up at home, this is what you get for that. And you also get to see movies and trailers that you wouldn't be able to see immediately. Now, I know there's some same-day streaming, and I think that's great. I think that's great for people who, um, who can't go out, whether because of uh, work obligation, family obligation, physical disability, mental disability... I think that's great to have that access. But just to remind people that you still get better quality and a better experience going to a movie theater. 10, 10 out of 10. I mean, I have seen movies in the theater and then I have watched them again. And it doesn't take away from the skill of the film. If I love the film, the film is good in of its own merits, regardless of what format. But it makes a difference, people. And that first impression is important. And I guarantee you some of my favorite movies, if I didn't see them in theaters, may not be. Some of my favorites, or even if they were, I wouldn't hold them to the same caliber. But part of that's that communal effort. Being in a theater with a bunch of people who are excited. When I saw Black Panther opening night, or when I saw Endgame opening night, holy shit. Or when I saw Star Wars Force Awakens opening night. Those kinds of experiences are unmatched. We get 100 plus people who are huge fans all in the same room. The energy shifts. Even when it's 20 people who are slightly interested. I saw everything everywhere all at once recently with a crap ton more people than I thought would be at this movie. And it was delightful. Because A, the film is one of the better movies of 2022 in my opinion. And B, the reaction from the audience was added another level to it that I couldn't have had elsewhere. It also allows creators to gauge the content that they're putting out it's a lifetime reaction if you are watching people watch your film and as a film director this is key if audiences 
you can tell by their facial expressions, by maybe some of their, uh, what they say or, or how they laugh or clap or, or cry or whatever. You can tell how and what is maybe impacting them or affecting them to a certain extent. That's why stand-up comedy only works in a live audience because those stand-up comedians make small adjustments and tweaks on the fly regardless if their material is practiced, rehearsed, or, or, or set in stone or not. And then they can probably improvise and add some stuff relevant to the situation at hand. It also gives them energy and experience and, and motivation and inspiration, right? There are just certain things that need to be done live in person. And there are certain things that may not need it, but may have added benefit for the creator, the publisher, or the community. You could say almost all these things could be digital and virtual for the sake of convenience. And I think that's true. And I think formats or copies of them should be. So it's accessible to people who can't be there in person, whether because of price, because of work, because of disability, or because of other extraneous circumstances. I think that's fine because accessibility is key. And I think that's part of the issue that people face when taking on this debate during the whole COVID shutdown. People were mad, like, no, movies shouldn't be streaming same day. And I'm a filmmaker and I'm a film buff. And a lot of people in my field and a lot of people who like the same stuff I like were abhorrent and absolutely against the notion that films that are in theaters should be streaming on streaming services the same day if you're subscribed to that service. I had no problem with that. And here's the reason why. Well, right now, for the, at the time, because I didn't think people should ever risk their life or, their, or just be anxious going into a movie theater. That's not the point. You go into a movie theater to take away your anxiety to absorb the film, to be taken to another world. So I don't think they would be very beneficial if you're in a movie theater and you're worried about getting sick, right? Um, and that shouldn't take away your right and your accessibility to watch the movie. Now the argument is, well, the movie will come out in a few months for those people. It always has, right? And I think that's fine because that still gives that exclusive feel to going to the theater. I do think if every movie was released simultaneously on digital, as in theaters, it would lose a little of its quality. So I'm not saying every movie, but a couple of the big hitters, right? A couple of big hitters, especially in conditions where it's not safe. And then at the very least, the very least, when the two to three months is over, those films, the day that they are streaming for retail price, or maybe a week after, so it at least gives a week for retail sales on that front, so the filmmakers can make more money, because trust me, they need it. It's not as much money. The, the filmmakers, not the publishers, not the distributors, not the, the studio, the makers, don't get as much money as you may think. I mean, other than the big dogs, which you know, but that, that's different. Um, but yeah, to speed up the process so it's free to the subscription service that people pay for whether that be Paramount Plus or HBO Max or um, Disney Plus or whatever. I did not have to pay a premium on that service since I'm already paying monthly. I get that. But I think, I think it could be a mixed bag. There are enough films put out in a year where a handful of them, maybe two or three big hitters, are exclusively in theaters, like Top Gun, and, and look at the success of that, Top Gun Maverick, right? The long-awaited sequel. Been out 
uh, delayed countless times and has had the largest box office success of any Memorial Day weekend film ever, right? That's huge. That brings a boon back to the theaters, and it was exclusively in theaters. It's not accessible anywhere else. So it proves people are still willing to go to the movie theaters, and it proves people want to be taken away and, and, and immersed in cinema. So I think there's a balance, and I think actually right now we're at a pretty good balance. We've got a handful of films that are streaming the same day as in theaters, and then eventually they come to streaming anyway. Accessibility. I think that's important. And I think that's not to take away from the theater experience, and I don't think it's to take away from the streaming experience. I think they could both be there while allowing people to traverse between both of them. Choice and accessibility, it's key. You're going to see that more often in many other things, and I think that's kind of something that 2020s is going to start offering, right? It's not going to be perfect, but I think it does make a better... Uh, uh, place, but I, I do think that comes with having to know when to balance yourself, and and that just comes down to the individual. Anyway, I'm sorry. You know, I do these podcasts off the top, so I just I have a general topic in mind, and then anything that takes me on a tangent, I let it take me, because that's that's what I do, and I love to talk about the things I know or, or my opinions. It's not to say I'm. I'm not the most knowledgeable, <laughs> I'm not the smartest person, and um, quite frankly, I don't earn or deserve to be like inherently listened to, but I have studied this stuff, I've learned this stuff, I've maybe, for some instances, done this stuff, and, um, and I mean in general, of my podcast show, and uh, so yeah, I just figure why uh, bore my family to death with it when I could at least maybe give some sort of insight or some new way of looking at something for all of you so i appreciate everyone who comes by and listens to this stuff because i i I do care about it and i do love speaking on it so that's theater movie theaters uh live theater same way it's a little different i do wish there were more televised live theater because theater specifically is much harder and much less accessible than just going to a movie theater live theater like plays and musicals um ranging from all scales but they're doing another Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf or another Hamilton, um, I do think it's one of those things where there should be televised um, versions of it because that allows, especially kids, that allows people who cannot see it, whether because of where they live doesn't have a local theater or because that theater that, that show is no longer touring or because it's just too expensive or too inaccessible. It allows them to see it. Right, the fact that tele- uh, Hamilton is televised is great. It is not the same as being there. I haven't seen Hamilton live, but I was raised in theater. Right, my my family uh, uh, is a big part of uh, live theater, so I've seen many many shows, Broadway, off Broadway, and in between. Right, all kinds of plays, musicals, ranging from all types of generations and, and genres and everything. Um, and for the ones that are televised, that I because I. I I wasn't old enough or I wasn't born and those shows are no longer touring, I'm appreciative of. And I wish more of that was available for people who literally cannot access it. So that's a big thing for me. That's why I think movies doing musicals is okay. People get mad at them. Now, of course, if they fuck up, they fuck up. But Spielberg did a beautiful job doing West Side Story. It is a phenomenal film because it's a great musical. 
And the original film is really fucking good, but it is dated. And there are a lot of people who would not even be interested in seeing it because of it was made in the 50s, which is ridiculous because it's a great film. So this modernization of the musical is phenomenal. And it, and it opens up uh, a new um, intrigue for people who may be younger because everyone should have access to it, even if they don't, even if it's not their thing. It doesn't mean, just because it's not your thing doesn't mean you need to say that it shouldn't be available to people who do appreciate it or who could learn or love to learn it or learn to love it, right? So that goes across the board for everything. And that's what gets into something that feels different because of video games specifically. Video games is, much like hip-hop, very modern, very new to the entertainment sphere. In fact, they're almost the same age. Video games and hip-hop. Video games is actually a little older than hip-hop, funny enough. Right? Technically, the first video game, it's argued, but heavily debated. But technically, people say the first video game was developed in 1957. And then some other people say 1960. But the first commercially successful and popular video game is Pong, which is early 70s, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, maybe late 70s. Right, and the, and the birth of hip hop is, um, I believe, the year and date in. Uh, I think it's nineteen seventy two, if I'm not mistaken. And it's early nineteen seventies. It's right around when Star Wars came out, actually. Early, it's it's seventies. <laughs> like, it's not on the top of my head anymore, but. I can't do the math, but last year I think was the forty eighth anniversary. So, my point is, these mediums haven't even been around for more than 50 years, which when you look at books, <laughs> books have been around for almost the entirety of man, and then, uh, or forms of books, forms of writing, right, and storytelling in that sense, and then uh, radio's been around since the early uh, 20s and 30s, and then film has been around since, uh, well, commercially has been around since the 1920s, but it was invented early 1900s, right? And photography, late 1800s. So, um, so yeah, it's just one of those things where the medium for video games and hip-hop, two things that I'm deeply in love with, other than film and a bunch of other stuff, of course, those are very new mediums. Those aren't but 50 years old when almost every other medium, contemporary medium it's competing with is 50 to 100 to 200 years or older, right? That's wild. That's why video games are so interesting because the, the they're and hip hop, but we're talking about video games this time around. Both of them though are at their peak right now. Video games are some of the most popular financially and commercially and in general, just consumer based products right now. And hip hop is the most listened to genre right now. So it's very relevant and interesting how these both are kind of intertwining because they're they're very alike in many ways and people don't realize but uh, that's another episode for another day I could compare hip-hop to video games I might do that that sounds interesting huh but for now I'm talking about this live format experience conventions showcases in video games it could be done digitally they could just post trailers right video games have from since 2010 um, it started this massive transition from physical based mediums to more digital as the internet became more accessible and intuitive, right? And online access in general. And since, I don't know, 2013 to 15, almost 
all video games since then has transitioned to digital sales and digital consumption. It's like 85% of the video game market is digital now. Maybe 90% now. Um, And that includes trailers, previews, promos, everything else. You watch them on YouTube or Facebook or Instagram, right? Or you follow those uh, developers on the social media. So these long-held conventions and physical formats like Game Informer Magazine, right? Or GameStop storefronts and uh, specific conventions from those developers and publishers. And then, of course, the big Mac Daddy that comes in every June, mid to late June, E3. They're all but gone and are dead. So let's get into the history, my personal experience, and uh, most importantly, the future of video game showcases and marketing. So E3 has been a renowned... um, staple of the modern video game industry, right, which is a predominantly led and marketed uh, facet of entertainment in America. It's not to say that there aren't uh, other nations that are leading the charge, right, Japan and and South Korea, for example, Um, but, uh, and Europe, of course, but the thing is that um, America has kind of been the largest proponent of video game success across the board in terms of the most video games and publishers and developers the most money coming in and going out to video games and the most people playing it well actually nowadays I think because of it's online that's harder to gauge but in general the success and popularity was accelerated due to America and so some of these conventions and the biggest names are there. Now, Sony, of course, and Nintendo, they're based in Japan. Um, Microsoft is in, you know, based in America. Um, and a bunch of other stuff. But, but my point is that America and Japan, those are the two biggest proponents of the video games industry and success, I would say. Um, once again, not taking away from any other nation that has contributed because they're all equally important. But, uh, but these are the big hitters that have been around the longest. And so with that, uh, E3 is a convention held in America. Um, usually in bigger cities in America. I think it shifts around, though. I think it, yeah, I think it's different cities each year. But, um, but it is, or was, because it is now dead. It is 2022. E3 is no more. They officially canceled it this year. It happened last year online, and it was minimal, and it was on its last legs. And most people are rejoiced by this. I am mixed, and I'll get into that in a minute. But E3 is definitely, was, and still, actually, the the idea, the, the formula, the significance of E3 still lives on. It's just not in this format, Right? It was a huge showcase convention that spanned between three to, hell, six days by modern times. But three primary days. And basically, it was an in-person physical event where you would get passes. The biggest game journalists and reviewers and developers and publishers would all be there. And then the biggest fans of these said games or franchises would also be there. It's the Comic-Con of video games, right? Most people know Comic-Con nowadays, right? CinemaCon, that's for movies, which is dope. That's relatively new. 
I mean, there have been many types of movie conventions, but not one that's so focused. It's dope. Love to go to one of those sometime. I mean, in its popularity, it's more recent. I have no idea how long CinemaCon's been around, but as of last, this year, I saw the CinemaCon stuff. I'm like, wow. How have I never heard of this? I probably have. It's just they, I think they rebranded themselves and found new ways to promote themselves. Anyway, my point is, E3 is game con, video game con. Quite frankly, it's impressive they never named it that. (laughs) And, I mean, we're talking games that were previewed, demoed, um, highlighted. If you're a gamer, if you're a fan of the video games or industry, it's a big year. Well, not a big year. I'm sorry. It's a big month in June because that's when all of your favorite games or updates and things come in. And sometimes they're for games that are already out. Oh, we're getting this new deal sale. We're adding this. Sometimes they announce acquisitions of studios there. And then most importantly, they announce games. New franchises, new sequels to those said franchises, new IPs in general, original you know, concepts. Um, they'll show teaser trailers, they'll show title logos, they'll show release dates, they'll show demos, they'll show gameplay, uh, video demos, and in-engine stuff, cinematics, and then, of course, they'll have showroom, uh, stuff exclusive to the people there in person, right? Certain specific Q&As and interviews that are closed-door accesses, beta previews, hands-on demos, those kinds of things. It was good for the culture. It allowed everybody who's passionate about video games and all the biggest industries to meet, to form, to show each other what they're working on, to see what each other are working on, even if they're competitors. Nintendo, Microsoft, Sony, and then all the big publishers, EA, Ubisoft, Activision and Blizzard, and more, right, Bethesda, they all had booths and they all had representation there. Now, over the years, some of that fragmented, they went and did their own thing. But it was still in the same time frame because the networking and the traffic that they got through E3 month, right, of June usually, was monumental. Very rarely did any other big studio do it in a different month. And if they did, it was like July, right? Or maybe August if they're stupid, but it was either June or July. Just a couple weeks after or before E3. uh, E3. Because gamers knew... Even people who weren't gamers were probably kind of coerced and steered towards that. That's where the traffic for the video game marketing went. That's, that was their Super Bowl. That was their commercial spot. And it's important. Hype in video games is the most marketable thing. So if you can get people excited by an E3 demo, which is a whole other issue we'll talk about, or if you can get people excited from a teaser or a trailer, just a logo... Just because of the brand name. Halo. Coming out 2022. 2021. Now, we'll get into the cons of it. But the pros of it were this. The community, right? The direct engagement and feedback for publishers and developers to see the people, to see the fans, to see who they're interacting with. That's always important for an artist, for a creator, for a developer of any kind. Publishers too. The communal experience allows them to see how the people react. If the original Halo didn't go to E3, they would never have fully realized where they fucked up because their E3 demo, even though it was built separate, it was still built from the same assets and a chunk of what their game was. And the players liked it, 
But there were so many issues and bugs at the demo that Bungie realized. And they had to do a lot of fixing because they only had a few months from that point on. Five months, actually, before they shipped their game. And they made those fixes because they were there and they saw people play it and they saw where people struggled. And it doesn't matter how much power you have, whether you're EA or Activision, no matter how many bug fixes reports or how many uh, people you have hired to scour the internet to see what people think in general, being there in person is different. Getting a comment from someone on my short films is lovely. It's great. It's either great feedback or it's really supportive words because they're hard to make and they take a lot of time and I only do them every so few years because that's how long it takes to get a film made even on a short film scale and it's great and I'm never going to say it's not because it, it's just phenomenal to, for everybody who checks out my films I appreciate it and speaking of that my latest short film that I directed A Way Out is on my YouTube channel uh, at Psychic Productions so please go check that out if you haven't already and uh, thank you for all the support and of course new music's on the way but the, the interesting thing is for me is when I'm sitting in person with people I don't always love it trust me but watching their reaction I'm not watching the movie if I've made it trust me I've seen the movie I know how it ends I've seen it enough right I might glance at it but I'm watching them I'm watching how they react I'm watching what they're tracking I'm watching what makes them wince what gives them a smirk right what makes them look at me like oh my god you just fucking do that or oh my god that's or what makes them groan or moan or hide their head in shame. Though, luckily, I've never had that. But, you know, or it makes them, you know, grab their armchair a little more firmly if it's a thriller. Those are the things I look for. It's the same at E3. That's what they're doing, right? And that's important because it's good, natural, first impression feedback. And that's key. The game in the first week is received well from the player. So they're like, oh, I like this game. You're good. You're pretty much set. That's why bugs are such a big issue to people. You would think like, oh, they could be fixed later. They could. And they usually are. Or lack of content. But those first one to three weeks is key for video games to succeed. It doesn't matter how big or how small you are. Elden Ring had a good first impression from when you pick up and play it from release day. It sure had some of its issues. Every gamer knows that there's going to be some issues. It's a, it's a complicated mechanical process that isn't going to be perfect. Nothing is perfect, right? Because you're interacting with the world, it's easier to notice what's not perfect. It's not like a film where you can hide stuff sometimes. But video games can still do that. It's impressive when they do. But my point is, they still... Um, it, it makes a difference. My first impression with Halo Infinite from the ga- gameplay standpoint was phenomenal. I was like, this is great. But immediately I knew, oh man, there's no content. Now I gave it benefit of the doubt because they released it a month early. I'm like, okay, it's beta. So some of the fixes will be made in terms of bugs, but that wasn't really the issue. We just need more content. December 8th, full release date rolls around. No new content. I'm like, are you shitting me? Uh, I mean, the campaign came out, great, but like no multiplayer content? I'm like, all right, I'll give it another, I'll give it through winter break. You know, they need a break. I'll give it through late January, early February. By that time, Elden Ring was on the horizon, so I was like... And I'm a huge From Software fan, so I already knew that was coming. And I'm like, okay, and nothing, still. 
they lost me. I still love Halo Infinite from a gameplay, and I'll still go back and revisit it every once in a while, but they have to make some monumental changes quickly, and they didn't do it. And it doesn't seem like they're gonna. They lost me. Elden Ring doesn't need to because it's a full package. They didn't strip any content. Sure, they got some bugs and issues. And there are a handful of things I'd love to see changed and added, which haven't happened yet, but that's okay because there's so much rich depth, and I've had, in my first three weeks, way more fun and excitement playing that game. And that's why I've logged 200 hours and have beaten one full playthrough and a half of one because I, I had it on PC. And then my friends bought it and I couldn't play with them, so that sucked. But anyway, um, so I bought it on Xbox because I'm a sucker. Uh, it worth it, though, because it's one of the best games I've ever played in my life, right? And that's the difference. That's, I mean, it's not that that couldn't have been formulated if I didn't have good first impressions, but it helped. It helped me stick with it longer to allow myself to see the full potential of the game. So those first one to three weeks is pivotal. I mean, some people would say the first couple hours, and that is key. Like, if it doesn't work in the first couple hours and you put it down, it's over. But especially when you buy a game, gamers are not going to put it down after a couple hours. Because they know it could take six to ten hours to fully get into it. And they also know they just paid 60 fucking dollars, so they're not wasting it. <laughs> right? <laughs> So that's part of it as well. But the conventions are important because they highlight the industry. They let us acknowledge and see the work that is in progress. It allows the developers to say, hey, this is what we're working on. We hope you're excited. And don't ever be mistaken, no matter how much a developer may fuck up or no matter how much they seem like they don't care, they care. If they didn't, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. They just don't know how to always prioritize their care or sometimes they're forced by publishers and weird predicaments or sometimes they don't care in the proper areas. But it's not that they don't care about the game. It's not They're not doing it for a paycheck. There is a million things they could be doing that would get them more money because of their skill sets in terms of working engineer and software and technical and artistry. They could be working somewhere else that's more lucrative with less work. It's not to say video games aren't some of the most lucrative things, but you have to spend years and thousands of hours into it. So it's not that they don't care. It's just sometimes they're told to care about something else by their publisher, or sometimes they think they should care about something. And that's because audience interaction is dwindling. The communication line between developers specifically, and publishers for that matter, and the community and the audience that plays your video game, which is, I mean, you have to have an audience for films. You have to have an audience for all these things. The creators have to present it to somebody. That's how it's public. <laughs> Music has to be listened to by people. That's how an artist succeeds. Video games have to be played by people. And because video games are so complex and interactive and sometimes ever-evolving and updating and changing, the community is, their feedback is invaluable. It, it's vital. And E3 didn't always do that. It's not like that was the sole reason why games succeeded. But it gave a good benchmark or inference when a game was in development. And it gave a good general idea, I think, to the publishers and developers. I mean... A handful of years ago, and this is just hilarious, at BlizzCon, which is Blizzard's conference, just separate, but same week as E3. So it's 
essentially the same thing. When I'm saying E3, I am meaning specifically that convention, but in general, I'm talking that time frame of conventions, even if their own publishers and studios split off and do their own thing. It's still in that time frame, and it's still the same exact fucking thing. It's just not with the E3-specific building and convention, right, and programming. But um, when BlizzCon did their thing and they announced a bunch of cool stuff and a bunch of mid stuff, and then they announced the new Diablo. And Diablo fans haven't had a new Diablo since 2012. <laughs> a mainline Diablo. And by the way, Diablo 4 looks fan-fucking-tastic. I am so excited for that, but that game is just... They announced that game like five years ago. I get it. It's a complex game. We've got a lot of shit has happened to Blizz Blizzard over the years, so there's a lot of setbacks, but God, I hope this game comes out in the next two years because we need it. And it feels like it might because they also announced Diablo Immortal. That's what people thought maybe Diablo 4 was at the moment. It was not. It is a mobile game of Diablo. And it, funny enough, it came out today. And this was announced three to five years ago. I don't even remember. I think it was 2017, 2018. Maybe, yeah, I think it was around then. Um, holy shit. I'm downloading it now, so I haven't played it, but that game uh, was immediately panned. People, you heard them audibly groan and moan and boo. Why? Well, because their expectations were set to see and hear of a release date and some gameplay of a new Diablo. Mind you, at that point, it's been, it was, um, four to five years since the last one came out. It's now been a decade since Diablo 3 came out. <laughs> people are ready yeah sure there's been some great expansions and add-ons to Diablo 3 which have which is great because the game is a pretty fantastic game but people are ready for Diablo 4 the Diablo fans and it's a great way to introduce new people to the genre and I have a whole episode podcast on how I got introduced and, and my experience with action RPGs so go check that out but but they announced the mobile game not to take away, I haven't played it, so I can't speak on it. Of course, it's going to be pay to win, and that's unfortunate. And it's free, but it's free. And even if it allows a few hours of Diablo, it's made from the creators, and it looks like it has better polish and, and pizzazz of a mobile action RPG than most. So for that, I'm looking forward to it. And it allows some of my friends to maybe get into it and understand the mechanics and the general flow of how Diablo works without having to pay a penny. I think that's cool. Now, I do hope this Activision Blizzard deal goes through, uh, because I've talked about this. Activision Blizzard is failing, and they need some new reworking. If it goes through, which it seems like it will, get all that Diablo stuff on Game Pass, God willing. So that'd be cool. But anyway, my point is that, um, that I like the accessibility of it. I'm not going to speak on it. I'm going to play it. It may be terrible. It may not run. It may be buggy. Or it may be too microtransaction-y. And I pray to God it's not. I pray to God it gives a nice balance where you can actually progress and make some stuff. But mobile games are never like that, unfortunately. And people knew that. People knew that immediately. Like, oh, it's free to play mobile game. Fuck. Doesn't matter how nice it looked. And it looked nice. It fooled people into thinking it was going to be a full-fledged game. So kudos to them on that. But it's like, no. Don't fuck us over like this, right? That was a concern. That was that was it. So anyway, I think that's integral to understand. Um, not to say that it's a bad game, I don't know. And it's not to say, and nobody knew it at the time. It was years ago and they just had a little preview. But it was panned because the expectations were different. 
And I think that actually made them rethink it and go to the drawing board and maybe restructure it. And now it's also free to play on PC, so it's still available, not just on mobile. And I think that also kicked up their output of showing off Diablo 4, because they understood that's what people really want of the Diablo community. I think that was an important learning. Another pro to E3, an example, was Halo Infinite. Back to this damn game, right? It's, this game is a very roller coaster of emotions to me, because I love Halo and I've been conflicted with this one. But let's be honest, what was it, 2019 E3 demo? Or 2020 E3 demo, maybe? Ooh. It looked fun. Everyone didn't disagree on the general artwork and the general flow of how the gameplay looked. And they were kind of intrigued by open world. We we're all skeptical about that. I don't think it fully landed, but that wasn't the main talking point. The main talking point for everyone was, what the fuck was those graphics? And really, go back and watch that, I think it was 2020, E3 of Halo Infinite's campaign. It's like 18 minutes long. Nobody was disagreeing it didn't look fun. Everybody was just saying, why does it look like shit? Visually... It looked like it should have come out in 2012, 2013. Not 2020. It didn't look it didn't look as good as Halo 5, which came out in 2015. People were perplexed, stupefied, bamboozled, hoodwinked. I was too. I was like, really? How is this? This is a this is six months away from release? Oh Jesus. Because of that, and, and I do think this was good. Because of that, they delayed the game by an entire year. Mind you, they were planning on releasing Halo Infinite with the new Xbox, which is huge. That's their main mascot. The original Xbox shipped with the original Halo. That's a big deal. That's a very symbolic, it's a, and it pushes the sales of the Xbox further. Microsoft and, and 343, I guess, but probably just Microsoft made the decision pretty quickly, a couple months after E3. They're they're gonna push it back and give it a year, cook in the oven more, more further develop it, and it looks great. It does graphically looks great now. It looks up to par with what it should have been, and it plays great. It's just no content. That's it. That's the only issue, and that's dumbfounding because almost every triple A game that comes out nowadays is buggy, broken, doesn't look right, built on an old engine. Halo has very little of the issues. It's it's buggy. It's not perfect. There's some imbalances and stuff, but. Um, but no, that's, that's not the main issue. The main issue is content, and Halo has never in the history of Halo truly suffered in the content department, ever. Halo 4 and 5 a little bit, but not too bad. Halo 5 the most, but it still had more modes than Halo Infinite, and in like two months they had a roadmap and updated it so frequently. So I'm just dumbfounded by how they fucked that up because now no one's going to go back and play that game. They have to have some godsend Hail Mary. See, the reason why people played Call of Duty Modern Warfare so much is because a yeah, new engine, rebirth of a beloved storyline, but also it was it played well. It was more mature, so it brought it back to its roots and it had a fuck ton of content. It didn't cut anything, really. It added shit. And then they had a war zone a couple months later. That war zone would not have succeeded if Modern Warfare 2019 was not the way it was. Warzone wasn't implemented to save that Call of Duty game. That Call of Duty game was successful. Warzone was implemented behind that Call of Duty game because it had enough people in its ecosystem already for that game. They could not have implemented Warzone during the Cold War game or during Vanguard. It would not have had as much success. They had to do it when they did, and they capitalized on it. 
So we'll see. This new Modern Warfare 2 is actually having an announcement in June 8th. Just got the notification uh, 20, 30 minutes ago. So anyway, those things are important. And hype, like I said, is the biggest marketing tool. If you can tell or promise somebody this game is coming out around this release date, first of all, never trust it. Never trust how it appears at E3. But why is that? And that's part of the cons we'll get into the next uh, part. Because that's a big issue. E3 didn't die because people didn't like it, per se. I mean, part of it was that. But it died not because of COVID. It did fine during 2020 and 2021. Well, 2021, it suffered a bit, but 2020, it did fine, um, and it and it could have kept going. There's no reason why they didn't couldn't have had it this year. There's no, you know, external conflict to it. It was sure COVID precautions, but not really. I mean, not not like 2020 and 2021, and they did it then. It's because the format never evolved, never updated. E3 became a toxic symbol in the past five years. But for 10 to 15 years, it was a beloved cultural video game icon because it allowed people to collaborate, communicate, and come together in one room. It allowed new demos, previews, and trailers, which would be previewed there, and then for the public, be on YouTube, or be free there. So gamers all around the world knew, okay, they'll get finally get word after a year or two or four of waiting. Because sometimes a game was teased, a 10-second tease, a little logo, or um, maybe a CGI cinematic but no gameplay yet. Just teased and saying we're in pre-production or just started development, but here's a little something so you all know what we're working on. And then they come back three or four years later and like, here's our progress. That's important. That made people excited. And, and there's many factors to why they'd be excited, whether the IP, the name, uh, maybe they're making a game based on something you like, maybe it's a sequel to something you love, maybe it's from a studio you trust or love, right? If From Software had some convention this year, this month, to announce the new DLC and the massive updates and balances and new um, systems that are going to go into Elden Ring, oh my fucking god. They don't need to, but they would they would ignite even a larger fire under everyone who has played or been interested in Elden Ring. They'd fight, light it right under their butt, and this game has already gotten so much critical acclaim and so many people playing it. They don't need to, and they probably they won't do that, but if they had a 45-minute convention where they showed that, just some new DLC, a whole new region, two new main bosses maybe, and... and, and a bunch of new weapons, a bunch of new bug fixes, a fully integrated co-op, and crossplay. But that's not going to happen. But at least fully integrated co-op. Holy fuck! Could you imagine? That would be, I mean, incredible for any Elden Ring fan, but also incredibly um, bold. That's where that can. That's the good that can come out of it. It was important. And when I was younger, quite frankly, I loved them. And I still do because I'm a video game guy. I don't, I'm not a complete sucker for the hype. I'm cautiously skeptic, skeptic, skeptic. <laughs> I'm a skeptic and I'm cautiously uh, watched what goes on in the industry. I, I don't know why I couldn't say that. I guess I'm too tired. 
Um, I'm definitely cautiously optimistic, right? When it's a game franchise I've loved or I'm interested in or would definitely try and play, I'd still be like, oh, I'm excited for it in the in the essence of what it will offer and what comes out. Like Starfield, right? That's the new Bethesda. It's their first original IP in like 20 years, which is wild. Unfortunately, it's not built on a new engine, which they desperately need because Bethesda and Rockstar's gameplay mechanics nowadays are dog water. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go play Skyrim. Go play Elder Scrolls Online. Go play Red Dead Online or GTA 5 or Red Dead 2. Go play those games right now. And come back. And then go and play the newest COD. And go and play uh, uh, Elden Ring. And go and play fucking, I don't know. Uh, cyberpunk even yeah, regardless of all the glitches and the hoopla those games play better they're updated they're modernized go play Titanfall 2 go play Apex the fluidity and and trust me Bethesda and Rockstar have enough money and influence they could change your systems and their mechanics to make it more fun more fluid and better looking and to run better because the engine doesn't also also doesn't just help with gameplay fluidity and help with the looks it also helps with the entire processing of the game and what you can put in it so the worlds could be much more expansive and better looking not stretching an engine that has been around for over a decade to its limits halo infinite is built on a new engine well i think halo 5 or halo 4 is and so it's a relatively recent engine COD Modern Warfare isn't rebuilt on an entirely new engine, but they restructured, they gutted the old systems and just used the skeleton and rebuilt this game engine at uh, Activision for Infinity War from the ground up. That's why Call of Duty Modern Warfare looks and plays so different from its predecessor. Those are important changes. So anyway, I wish Starfield would fucking do that. There, It's been 20 years... Bethesda's under Microsoft, so they have the resources and they have the skill. And they're launching their first original IP. It would make a hundred bajillion million percent sense to build a new engine. That way they're also not limited to the possibilities of what they're trying to do. Anyway, it is a space exploration action adventure sounding game. It looks interesting. Uh, To be honest with you, I like Bethesda, I like their storytelling, I've always loved some of their games, but I'll be honest, in the past five, six years, I've never had fun playing them anymore, because they're outdated. So I'm skeptical, not to say I don't like it. I mean Bethesda Game Studios specifically, I don't mean everyone under them. Machine games and, um, you know, um, the name just left, left me, Arcane Studios and, and a bunch of others, definitely excited for those, but... Um, but yeah, we'll see, we'll see. So I'm excited, but I'm going to be very skeptic until I hear the reviews first day, until I get my hands and play the demo. Well, it'll be on Game Pass, so I'll be able to play it for free. So that's the other thing. I don't have to worry about purchasing it, but time, time is a big proponent. These things matter. Presentation matters. It allows your fans to know what you're working on. It allows you to see what your competitors are working on. It allows you to hear the feedback if you're presenting your game. It allows the community to all kind of embrace in a singular couple weeks and get hyped about something. And it's also in the dead of everything, right? Summer is a dead season for video games. Not many things come out. Experimental shit 
but all the marketing and hype goes into the fall. We're talking early September for the, the games that are still big, but not as big. We're talking Borderlands when the first Destiny came out because they didn't know how that would work and how that would be received. Uh, those kinds of things. So September all the way through to January, really. But mostly the bulk of it is to late November. They're trying to get in before that Christmas deadline. Um, specifically for Black Friday. So either games come out a little bit before Black Friday. So when Black Friday comes around, they're on sale. Or right after. Um, that's why Call of Duty almost always releases in late October, early November. That's why. It's consistent. It makes sense. Um, so yeah. We'll see. We'll see how it all goes. Uh, it's a big year for video games. A lot of them are catching up. A lot of sequels to beloved recent reboots or IPs. So it's a very interesting year. Funny enough, February, I'd say February is probably the best month of video games so far this year, which is usually a dead month. We had Forbidden uh, Horizon, uh, Forbidden West, right? Wasn't Zero Dawn the first one? I, I get it mixed up. Uh, I, I don't have PlayStation, as you can tell. Um, we had Sifu, which is a phenomenal martial arts game. We had, of course, Elden Ring, which was the punctuation. And then Dying Light 2, long way sequel, started the month. Those are just four. And then there were a couple other uh, games. I think there was a Nintendo release slotted in between there. So that was a huge month that kind of kick-started this year off pretty good. And there have been some other big games along the way. But, yeah, Fall is where it all lands. So we'll see. Mostly it's been acquisitions, which also changed the industry. I just rem- I remember in, tw- what was it, 2014? I think this is the same convention. I was at my buddy's house. It was in June. It was, I, mean, I was super hyped. You know, I was younger. And got the first tr- teaser trailer on Hoth of Battlefront. EA Star Wars Battlefront, right? I, I, I knew at the time, it, right? I was younger, and we didn't know what we know now. I was excited. I'm a Star Wars fan. A new Star Wars game. New graphics, all that. Definitely hyped. And then... Um, Bethesda had a thing. And it was really cool because they... This is a long segment. I apologize. I should have probably broken it up, but that's all good. I need my money. Anyway, um... I, by the way, uh, for anyone interested, I don't get paid very much. Those little sponsor segments, they're great because they do pay me a little bit, but we're talking like pennies. Uh, so don't don't think I'm making bank off this. Don't think I'm doing this for money. I'm not. I'm doing this because I love talking about it. Um, anyway, so the – yeah, they had the um, – they had big AT-AT walking around. I guess that's what that is. Um, they had the AT-AT walking around. Someone called it an AT-AT once, and I thought that was the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. I've always called it an AT-AT. Um, I, I get it. I get if someone calls it that. That makes sense. I just never heard that, and I chuckle every time on the inside. But yes, the um, that was shown, and then, of course, Bethesda had their thing, and they showed, I, if I'm not mistaken, I, I could be. I could be getting my years mixed up. Who knows? Um, uh, Bethesda showed Fallout 4. Yeah. Yeah, this was around that time. 2013, 2014, I think. 
They showed up. They showed Fallout Four. Yeah, yeah, it's 2014, or 2015 maybe. Maybe it's 2015 actually. And they said, "Oh, it's coming out this year, this fall." It was the first big showcase of it. I'm like, "What? <laughs> That's crazy!" So that was wild. And then they had the balls to drop a mobile game called Fallout Shelter, which isn't the best game ever, but it's actually pretty good. And they just dropped it the same day. I like that. I think that's cool. I love surprise album drops from my favorite artists. Of course, I love the hype, too. I mean, I I appreciate that. But I don't love waiting for too terribly long. Like, if you told me, like, I'd still wait. But if you have to wait beyond a year on a definite release date. I know that's rich coming from me, but I actually have to drop content that consistently because I'm not that big to just drop something out of nowhere. So my albums, you know, almost annually, there's going to be something new. And I tease it and stuff. There's no official release date until I know it's going to come out that day. Because I'm a gamer. Because I know how much it sucks if you're actually looking forward to something for it to be delayed. And I don't know who exactly is looking forward to my stuff. I hope a handful of people. And if they are, that would hurt if I was like, oh, that album you were looking forward to? Yeah, I'm pushing that back three months. Oh, sorry, two more days. Oh, sorry, a week. No, it's unprofessional. It's not cool. Hurts reputation and it actually hurts sales. So, um, and initial streams and all that. Same goes for anything. So sometimes it takes longer. But I and I and I have things that come out in between to hold people over or to keep them interested. And I have teasers and promos. I'm very considerate, or as considerate as I can be. Because I think of it as if there is somebody out there who's a diehard fan of mine. I don't know if there is. I hope there is. But if there is, I think of it as if it was someone I'm a diehard for. Right? In terms of music. Or anything, really. How I would want to be informed. I'm patient. And I think if you're a diehard fan or if you're really appreciative of the work, you understand you have to wait. Because they have to make it. <laughs> and if they're trying to improve on something, you gotta give them time. You gotta give them space. Right? And you can go and listen to all their stuff or their album. But going completely ghost and silent isn't going to work. Especially in this format. Especially at my level. If I just went ghost, I would lose a lot of engagement. People would think I'm not doing it anymore. So no. I keep teasers coming. I keep promos. I keep singles. I keep features. I keep covers. I keep content. So people know I'm not dead. And I remind them what I'm working on. And I remind them the progress I'm making. And I remind them what's down the pipeline and what to be excited for. And I don't promise anything I don't know I can't fulfill. Because usually I don't promise anything. Because I don't want to. That's too many expectations and there's too much pressure set on myself. I have enough pressure to try to finish a fucking album. Which, by the way, if anyone's ever told you, it's not easy. (laughs) It's very difficult, but it's worth it. And to finish an album in a generally decent time frame to keep the momentum while also making that album better than the previous one. I don't have a lot of time, people. I have probably from the day one album releases, I've already started writing the next project or even sooner. I only have three to four months to finish writing it. Then I have two to three months to record it, a month or two to mix and master it, and then a month or two to promote it, promo and advertise it. That keeps me in under or near a year, sometimes a little over. That's okay. 
And I also work on other projects, so I have smaller projects releasing in between that. So, of course, it's not a complete dry season where you don't have anything to stream that's new of Psychics in between a full album release. Right? That's important to me. One of these days I'll make a podcast on how exactly I make an album, because I think people want to hear that. I'm not saying I'm the best at making albums, but I've made quite a bit. They get better every time. They get better marketing. And um, I have a lot of people who are curious on how the hell I keep up with it. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Mostly it's the passion and love for it. Um, so yeah, Th- those are things that are important. And E3 really hammered that home. Because it was a focus week where we all got to get excited and learn about the games we love and the studios making them. So what are the cons? Let's get into it. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're doing well. So I talked a long time about some of the pros of E3 specifically, and then also in general, just the pros of, you know, that in-person audience experience. Oh, man. But it doesn't stop there. It's not all pros. It's not all happiness. E3's been a pretty divisive topic in terms of the gaming world the past couple years. And everyone has their reasons, right? I have fond memories of certain E3 events. And I think as a whole, the culture of video games does uh, benefit from a format similar to and or the intentions of what E3 did when it did it right. The shared communal aspect of just appreciating everyone's art, the use of marketing and getting people excited for your project, meeting and and interacting with your fans and letting your fans interact with what you've built so far and allowing developers and publishers to get a pulse on the audience um, and their, their fans to better gear and reconfigure things if they need it. And to get the general video game industry all in one room to celebrate each other, the work and the future work that's to come, as well as to get the fans excited for the upcoming projects to keep us motivated and keep us excited for that next game. It's all very good stuff. But E3 specifically became out of date. And some of its things were actually counterintuitive and in fact corrosive to the success of video games and audience expectations. In fact, E3 is specifically responsible for a lot of video game developers facing um, harsh crunch in the final stretches of completing a game, as well as uh, creating anticipation and hype where there shouldn't have been as much as there was. Now, let's get one thing out of the way real quick. If you're excited about something... Or if you are passionate or, or happy about something, don't let anyone else tell you otherwise, right? Unless, of course, you're like a terrible human and you get excited about hurting other people. Like genuinely causing harm to people. Other than that, though, um, but, but <laughs> in all seriousness, what I mean by that is, you know, if you're excited about the, this next, uh, whatever, Call of Duty or, or, you know, the next Titanfall... Or the next, um, you know, JRPG. Uh, Name your choice, right? Or the next Nintendo game. Whatever. If you're excited about it, 
regardless of how someone else may feel, regardless of the general consensus of somebody, regardless of the quality of it, if you enjoy it or if you're excited for it, then stick with that. Don't let anyone else dissuade you from how you feel about it. Now, let their distaste or maybe their opinion, let it maybe inform or guide you. If you're not 100% sure, maybe you liked it, but maybe you're realizing it ain't all that, you know, especially if it's someone you care about or have value to hear their input from. That's why we listen to certain reviewers or certain YouTubers or, or friends or family, you know. I have a handful of friends who really listen to me when I give them video game advice. Of course, they go and make their own decision at the end of the day, and sometimes they don't listen to me. I don't have any problem with that, but I will give them my two cents, my information, and my general thoughts if they want it, or even sometimes even if they don't. Um, because I know these things. And if I don't, then I won't speak on it. But if I do, if I have played that game for an X amount of time, or if I do know about the history, or if I do know maybe something to like look out for, like, oh, this game looks great, but just be aware that they had some rough development things behind the scenes that you may not know. You know, general things. And sometimes it helps them make a more informed decision. Sometimes they listen to me when I'm excited about something, and that's usually beneficial. Because I have a pretty good intuition about well-made video games, regardless of if it's your taste or not. And when it's specific friends, I do learn their taste. There are certain games I just won't bring up with certain friends, not because it's not a good game, and not because they shouldn't play it at any point, but because they won't. It's just not their thing. There are a handful of things and games and things that, just in general, you just don't need to bring up around me. You can. I'm not going to just shoot you down and say, fuck you. I'm, I'm interested to learn as much as I can. Right? So, fire away. If it's appropriate, of course. If it's good timing and everything. But I'm, I'm intrigued to hear things. I, I want to learn. I want to I experience new things. And I want to find the time to, to really learn what you like. And, you know, if you like a game and you're like, hey, say, I love this game. This is why. Well, you know, I'd be happy to hear about why and maybe try it. But in general, there are just things I don't love. There are just types of games I, I just, even if I want to love them, even if I try to get into them, I just can't. Maybe not right now. Maybe in a few years I'll get into them. I don't know. But just not now. You know? It's not there yet. So, uh, that's just one of those things. And sometimes I annoy my friends because I'm like, no, but you should really try. When I know it's something they'd like and they're just being stubborn, I get annoying about it. I admit and I feel bad about it sometimes because, <laughs> yeah, I don't mean to be a dick or annoying, but I sometimes am. And, hey, sometimes it actually works to my benefit. So, yeah. Um, but hype is, hype is okay. You're, it's okay to be excited about something. I feel like uh, as video game players, consistent gamers... We have this new perception that if you're excited about something, don't be. Because you're sure to be disappointed and life isn't fun and da-da-da. Fuck you and your feelings. I don't think that's a healthy stance on this. I think cautiously optimistic, skeptical until you see more but excited for what you see right now is a perfect stance. And that's how I always have been. Oh, okay. And I'll admit sometimes my hype gets a little too off the rails. And it, and it disappoints me. Especially a couple weeks before that release. Borderlands 3, I was pretty hyped about. I like Borderlands. Um, I, I saw, I heard decent reviews. It's got more loot. It's got all the mechanics I love about Borderlands with some fine-tuning. I'm like, okay. 
you know, it's September, I'm bored, I'm stressed, I want a new game to play, sink my teeth in. I was excited. And I wasn't too excited for months, and I remembered that it was coming out. So that kind of like, oh, wow, this is actually coming soon. It's not like a huge wait. It's like coming out in two weeks. I really got myself amped up. I really did. And I knew it. And it's not a bad game. It's just not as good as I was hoping it would be. It's not a great game. It's a good game. It's a solid game. It's just not my favorite. Played it for probably 10, 15 hours. And like, yeah, okay. Not really me. Sometimes hype and energy and excitement pushes you through even the worst of a game. I was super excited for Cyberpunk. I can't tell you how excited I was. I was interested in it ever since I was, you know, since the first announcement in like 2014. It's just wild. And then 2017, 2018, I progressively became more excited. And then in that final stretch in that last year, I just built myself up as a hype engine. I'm just like, oh my god, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. It's going to change everything. I was just really looking forward to it. And I really, you know, I put my eggs in that basket. Here's the thing, though. I still had skepticism. I knew it's an open world game, which doesn't always grab me. So right off the bat, I knew, okay, this might not work. First, especially RPG open world, first person shooter that way, something is compromised. Either the RPG open world mechanics are boring and compromised, or the first person shooting fluidity and combat skills are compromised. And I knew, coming from a studio like CD Projekt Red, definitely the shooting and fluidity mechanics would be more compromised than the RPG storytelling in open world. Because they know how to do that. They don't know how to do a first-person shooter as well. Right? If Infinity War designed an open world RPG FPS, I would know for sure. They got, they'll get the first-person shooting, that combat mechanic down pat. I'm not worried about that. Right, Bethesda, I'm not worried about the RPG mechanics and the scale of the world. I am worried about the combat from software. They kind of do both pretty perfectly. That's why they're such a renowned studio. So you know what I mean? Like It's just one of those things where I already kind of know from previous work. Right, I know what CD Projekt Red created, so I kind of knew going in. Eh, shooting's going to be there. And all I was telling myself is, as long as it's better than Fallout 4. I hate the shooting in Fallout 4. I think it's the dumbest shit I've ever played. It is so counterintuitive to everything. Yeah, it's got the same control schemes as your standard shooter, but why? Why is it so fucking sluggish? The only way you can efficiently land shots is a VAT system. And, you know, you could tell me that's not as, it's not as important. It's about the RPG. It's about the exploration. Fine. But every combat encounter, and it's an action game, so there's a fuck ton of combat. Every combat encounter revolves around shooting and very rarely meleeing. So, you know what I mean? This is one thing. Whereas the Outer Worlds, much better shooting. Not as not great. Not great shooting by any means. Not compared to an actual dedicated first-person shooter. But much better. Much more doable. Made it fun to play. So you just go in with those preset expectations, those understandings of what could be of it. So I kind of knew that. And I knew it was going to be buggy as shit. Do you know why I knew? Because I saw how they were developing the game. I saw that they originally had it third person. And they scrapped that and rebuilt it in the past two years. So the eight years it took them to build the game, two years of those, they were reworking the entire fucking game. So I knew there was going to be a shit ton of bugs. I didn't think it was going to be that broken, I'll be honest with you. Especially on base consoles, I thought that was egregious. And I think it's a shame because it's actually a phenomenal game. The open world design, the, uh, the RPG mechanics, the story, the cinematics, the dialogue is really well written. It's a phenomenal game. It's actually a masterpiece. 
IGN and all these other review outlets who reviewed it on PC in the first week, they weren't wrong. It is that good when it works. And it's a shame that it didn't work, and that's part of that first impressions thing I was talking about. It died quickly because those first impressions were mostly negative. But it is a great game. And if you have something that isn't a base console, which, by the way, guys, just so you know, um, Cyberpunk may have started in development for the base consoles, but by the time they were polishing and redesigning things, they were leaving the base consoles behind. So anybody who actually thinks that in 2014, 2015, Cyberpunk was going to keep to the format and to the engine and to the quality of a 2014, 2015 game is not thinking clearly. Really? By 2017, you didn't think that maybe they figured, okay, well, we now need to kind of restructure some things and keep in mind that we're going to be putting us on mid-gen hardware, so Xbox One X and One S and PS4, um, what's it called? The, not the base one, the more powerful one that does 4K. So by that point, they probably already re-diversified their assets in 2016, 2017 for that. So you didn't think that by 2018, 2019, they didn't figure that by the time they put this out, they'll have it um, run perfectly fine on next-gen hardware and PC, and that they'll have a patch specifically designed for next-gen hardware since they were finishing the game before next-gen hardware even came out? Come on, guys. They were not designing this game for base consoles by the time, by probably 2016, 2017. And I don't think they ever were. I think they had to at the time because that's when the that's what they had to work with. But I think they knew that this game was going to take a while. So don't don't think that. I I hate hearing that people are like, well, they started development on PlayStation Four and Xbox. So why isn't the, the what? <laughs> are you serious? Really? You know how many games were in development and started on develop Destiny. I think. The first Destiny? There is a 360 version, I think. They scaled it back. Maybe not. That came out. No, that came out a year into Xbox One and PlayStation 4. So, to, that's what's that? 7th or 8th gen? 8th gen, I think. Uh, or 7th, maybe. So, yeah. Guys, that's just not how these things work. So... Um, it was disappointing with all the bugs. I'm not defending them. I think it's egregious, and they shouldn't have released it. I, I tell people they should have delayed it another year, but the problem was the community. They're getting death threats. People were threatening. They took too long. That's a perfect example of a little too long. Eight years of development and still generating hype. They shouldn't have announced the game until 2018, 2017. That's the other thing, and then let's get into that with E3. E3 is big about marketing and community engagement. Here's the thing, though. The publishers drive the show, not the developers. Developers are there because of the publishers. The publishers have to meet quotas. They are the financing, the business. They have to clear and break even or get in the green or make a fuck ton of money, depending on who they are. They have to make some sort of money back for their investors, for their own sake, to keep the doors and the lights on. Well, lights on, doors open. So... At the end of the day, E3 is marketing for them. It is buzz. It is a way to get the hype engine turning. And this is why it's unfortunate, because the publisher often will sacrifice the quality and longevity of a game over time. 
after a couple years, they'll be like, all right, if it's not great, who cares? We have to at least, at the very least, get enough hype. So when it releases, even if it's not the way we were hoping it'd be, I don't think publishers, by the way, design a game for the most part. There are a handful of games where this is absolutely the case. But for the most part, I think publishers still want a good game. Bandai Namco is happy to have From Software develop Elden Ring. That's why they gave them the time and the resources they did. They knew it was going to be quality. They knew people keep playing it. They knew the reputation and faith in the companies. And they knew it would sell good enough. Good for what they expect from From Software games to sell. And in fact, it exceeded expectations tenfold. Which right now is a good thing. It could prove to be a bad thing. But for now, it's a good thing. Because what that tells Bandai Namco is we were right. We trusted our intuition and we were right. And from software delivered. So next go around, next game, we'll give them even more resources and money if they need it, and we'll give them the time they need to make the masterpiece they have to make. And for continued content and resources and, and allocations towards those resources, the the Elden Ring is gonna get service more. It's gonna have better server um, stability. It's gonna have updates, features, and DLC and content if you know if from software allows it, of course. Um, but ben, but From Software is not going to have to beg Bandai Namco to listen to them, which I don't think they did because From Software is so um, reputable in terms of critical. And that's the thing. When you look at publishers, I'll get into E3 in a portions soon. This all interconnects. But I do want to mention publishers sometimes have two different modes. They, have, they need the cash cows. They need the games and the studios that make the moolah and keep the lights on and then they'll have the handful of studios that make the awards come in so they keep reputations high and then if you have a studio that can do both all the better right look at activision blizzard right you've got um they used to have award-winning games and shit like that but i I think that kind of fell off and money became the operating um operative goal unfortunately but you look at bandai namco from software isn't a seller in, in terms of, they, they do great. They sell phenomenally for what they put out and for how niche and hard their games are. They do a great job, and Elden Ring proves that. But Elden Ring couldn't even punch near the weight of a Call of Duty, even though it's a bajillion times better in terms of design quality, original thought, and artistry, I think. So, um... I mean of the recent CODs. I don't mean Elden Ring as one game is better than the entire Call of Duty franchise. You can't compare them. But I just mean in terms of quality and artistry and, um, and the beauty of the game. Right? You've Call of Duty knows what it needs to do. Elden Ring knew what it needed to do. Both completely different. And the publishers set different expectations. Activision set the expectation that this Call of Duty doesn't need to win any awards. It, great if it can. Make it as good as you can, I guess. But make it make money. From software or Bandai Namco has games that make money. They have plenty under them. Not as much as Activision, but they have plenty. They're not worried about that. They need From Software to make the money. At the very least, that's expected on their previous sales, but also most importantly, make the game of quality, because they want awards. Right? And that's that's the thing. That's there's the difference, critical and commercial reception. And if you can get both, great. And Elden Ring struck gold and did both. But my point is that um, not every studio consistently will do both. 
Look at Bethesda, for example, right? Bethesda's won a bajillion awards as a game studio, but then as becoming their own publishers, their cash cow is their own game studios, which is why you saw the quality drop off post Skyrim. That's why every Bethesda game, I think, post Skyrim, post 2012, 2013, has been a significant quality drop off in what they used to deliver as just a game studio. Uh, and they might have been self publishing, but just. But since then, since them and ZeniMax and whatever has acquired so much more, their cash cow is the Elder Scrolls and Fallout. That's their two cash cows, and they make a fuck ton of money from that, so they're good. That allows them to make Arcane Studios their award winner. And that allows Machine Games to be their experimental, hopefully, award winning at some point. Wolfenstein deserves some goddamn awards, but whatever. Um... Wolfenstein, Dishonored, all these games, Deathloop, don't, they don't sell. They don't sell near to the quality and quantity of an Elder Scrolls game or a Fallout game, right? They're just not as commercially viable. They're plenty. They sell plenty. I guarantee you they sell more than most people could dream of, but they don't even hold a fucking candle. So that's the point. They have those studios to utilize those awards, the quality, to keep the reputation solid. It's the same with EA. EA is a little different. EA is fucked up so royally in so many areas that it's actually impressive that the last redeemable studio they have, which I pray to God doesn't get compromised, but it will. Right, EA has Bioware and has DICE and and a handful of other great studios under them. Um, And to their defense... Those studios back in the day, the early risings of EA, were phenomenal. They turned out some of the most important and and award-winning games and just really changing the industry. That's why they're so popular. Now they're commercial staples. Uh, Bioware is suffering, but in general, you know, Mass Effect and Dragon Age, those always do well commercially for those things. And then, of course, the Battlefield series and the Battlefront series breaks in the dough. And then, of course, EA has their own sports thing, which is a fuck ton of consistent money. They own, they do NHL, they did do FIFA, they just lost that, and then they did Madden. Those are everything but NBA, everything but NBA. I mean, they have their own NBA thing, but no one plays that. That's pretty big. That's three pretty heavy hitter sports games that they have a lot of control over that are annual releases that have sports fans coming back for more so that's a lot of money going into EA and then Need for Speed a bunch of other stuff right Star Wars of course Star Wars is always a big money bringer so their award winning studios dwindled and then Respawn came in Titanfall 2 is award winning and it's also commercially viable they just EA didn't do it justice Jedi Fallen Order commercially viable highly award winning and as commercially viable as Star Wars is, Jedi Fallen Order will not be as commercially viable as a game like a Battlefront type, right? It just won't be. It's still very commercially successful. So Respawn is in this really weird area where, much like from software, uh, they're just a good developer. They make quality, well-designed games with good intention and intuition. And they also make games that are extremely popular, i.e. Apex Legends. Say what you will about the game, but it's a well-made game. It's a very high quality, and it's from the universe of Titanfall, so I can't knock it too hard. It's not my thing, but it's very well-made. It makes them a book ton of money. It's probably their highest profiting game right now. EA, that is. 
So that's my point. So when publishers are at E3, they're really hammering home that. I'm sorry if there's any fan noise. This room's hot as hell um, where I'm staying. So if there's any background fan noise, I apologize. Um, but anyway. I think there is. Yeah. That's a shame. Hopefully it didn't dwindle my quality of uh, what you could hear. But anyway, my point is that these studios um, are really for promotion, for marketing, and hype. And that's what is the most detrimental. Watch Dogs from Ubisoft is the famous example that a lot of people use. No Man's Sky is another one. A handful of others. Watch Dogs, when it was presented at E3 in 2014, 2013, whatever, looked phenomenal. I mean, gameplay, take it for what you will. It's uh, If it's your style, it's your style. But the quality of the graphics, the effects, oh my god. It looked really good. And it presented like a gameplay preview. Someone moving the main character, forget the character's name, I never played the games. Um, but, you know, moved them around, did things. It was like a, it was like a 10 minute preview. It was phenomenal. It looked great. It played. It was, it had all these intricate things going on. It really looked like a game changer. It really looked like the industry stepped forward. It actually looks like what a 2021 PC game at the highest quality looks like. That's what it looked like in 2014. There's no other game on the market that looked as good as it did in that preview. That generated a lot of hype. A lot. It sold really well. It's one of the higher selling games of that year when it came out for Ubisoft. For Ubisoft's catalog. Other than, of course, their Assassin's Creed's and their Tom Clancy's. But it was was up there. So what happened? What went wrong? It wasn't that good. In terms of... A lot of the mechanics and features weren't pro- that were promised weren't there, but more so over as well. The actual fucking graphics were standard. Seemed like any kind of game that Ubisoft would make of that year. It did not look anything like it was presented in E3. Because of that move, that single-handedly helped the the... The, dis- the dissolvement of trust between an E3 showcase presentation and the community. That was one of those tipping points. That's how disappointed people were. Division did the same thing a few years later. Um, and it turned out it wasn't in-game gameplay. It wasn't in-engine gameplay. And you have to look for that. If it says in-engine cinematic, if it says... If it doesn't say anything... If it doesn't say in-engine gameplay or captured in-engine in, you know, this is beta testing, this isn't final, then the quality drop-off and consistency may be much more severe. Now, I think every time you see a showcase, it's going to be somewhat different by final release. Just the features have to be cut sometimes or maybe new features are added sometimes. Um, Art style, graphics, things change. It's not a final state. You know that when you see these showcases. You know that this isn't the final state. Especially if the release date is way out there. Funny enough, the art style that we saw for the first teaser of Cyberpunk actually is... was the Mantis Blades that you can use in-game. 
so that's cool. But a lot of promised features and content was cut from Cyberpunk. A lot. They just couldn't fit it. It just didn't work, and it's unfortunate. Maybe they could have done it, but no, it just it was too complex. They they bit off more than they could chew. It happens. It's not the end of the world. I do think though that it's vital to understand that it's going to be a little bit of a difference, a drop off in quality and content. But how significant is that drop off? Is it a completely different game than you thought? We don't. You pay two to three times more than seeing a movie or buying a movie. You have to play and interact with it, so you spend almost between ten to sixty times more time in a video game than a movie. So you pay two to three times more, you spend 10 to 60 times more just general hours in it. That's a large investment of time and money, people. And that adds up. And it's worth it. Gamers love it. It's part of what we love to do. So there's no problem with the actual general idea of that investment. It just, there's opportunity costs. Sometimes you don't get to play the game that you may want to try or play. Sometimes you can't do other things. Now that's up to the individual. I have a pretty decent balance with it. And I love the game. So I will find the time to game. It's just what I like to do. Can't speak for everybody. But even then, I still want to be wise about my purchase. I don't want to spend $60 on a game where I'm just like, ugh, this is a dud. And I definitely fucking don't want to spend 30 hours and $60 on a game and then to find out, oh, it doesn't really click with me. Now, I have played long enough to kind of know what to stay away from. I can tell when a franchise or a publisher is having a rough couple years. I wouldn't have bought Call of Duty Vanguard if I wasn't peer pressured. And the only reason I did that was to consistently play with a certain friend I was... With a couple different friends I was trying to keep in touch with. That was it. It was purely a social purchase. (laughs) I bought the game knowing I wasn't going to love it. I played the beta and I hated it. I just hated it. I just had no fun. It wasn't actually that glitchy. I just didn't like it. I wasn't having fun in it. And for Call of Duty, that's, that's, even for COD, that's hard to do. CODs are actually pretty fun to play. They're, it's hard to fuck up the fun factor of a Call of Duty, and they did it in Vanguard. I'm like, wow, this is boring. It's like worth maybe 30 minutes a day. I'm not paying $60 for one year's worth of progress for 30 minutes a day for a month. And then I play something else. Elden Ring I was going to buy. There was no two ways about it. I didn't need a beta. I was going to buy it. I'm a From Software believer. I was skeptical of open world. I really was. I was skeptical of them doing an open world. Not because I didn't think they could do it. I just... I was afraid that it might overwhelm the game. And it might add mechanics that I don't like to see in open world games into a From Software game. From Software does a beautiful job at... Marrying combat and RPG and interesting story aspects and lore and atmosphere and art design. Oh, my God. It does all that. And it's not... I mean, it's graphically good, but it's not the sharpest graphics. But it's pretty. It's a beautiful artwork, and that complements it just fine. But I just was like, oh, I hope this doesn't take away from the focus nature. Because even though it's open level, and they're pretty open and expansive and intricate... I was concerned that Elden Ring would maybe lose some of the focus that games like Sekiro had. Sekiro was open level. You could approach things differently. You know? It followed the Dark Souls formula, but 
Dark Souls 3 and 2 and Sekiro and all these games were much more open, or still open enough, like for Jedi Fallen Order, for example. So you can still spend hours in it, but you, it's not just go anywhere. And I was worried about that, especially with bosses and structures and respawns, all that stuff. I was like, oh, please don't make it tedious. Do not make me travel across the world just to fight this one thing. They did. They made it just that. That's what open world is. I was just... But they did a good job at it because, first of all, they made each region interlock. Even though they interconnect and, and have intricacies between each region, each region is its own unique map, almost. Just inter, just built beautifully. You can summon your horse at any time. It's instant. They have the movement down perfectly. They're running, jumping, sliding, dashing, stabbing, all that. The fluidity of control precise control and movement is really good. It's not like a Rockstar game where it's sluggish and clumsy or like a Bethesda game. Those are both sluggish, clumsy controls. I wouldn't dream of having another open world game with them unless they improve those mechanics. I'll still buy them, but I really don't want to if they're the same mechanics like that. They kept that fluidity, kind of like Sekiro and Dark Souls 3. They kind of melded those that feeling. Combat was better than ever. Of course, everything else about it just brought their A-game. This is their magnum opus. But each area was interesting to explore. And here's the kicker. And I know I've talked about this before on my previous two Elden Ring podcasts. I know I've gone on about this game. But guys, it, I haven't had a game shake me this much and, and become my top five games easily this quickly. So I'm going to be talking about it for a while because it's one of my all-time favorite games now. Um, it... It just did things in a way where I want to explore it. I still want to explore it. I've beaten it. I'm about to start New Game Plus for the first time. I had a huge setback because I played for about 50 hours on my PC. No, 90 hours. And then my friend got it. I'm like, fuck. And we couldn't play together. And and after a while, it was so boring to just talk to each other when we were both playing it separately. Knowing that co-op is doable. wasn't isn't perfect. It's a little tedious, but it's doable. And it's actually really fun. So I got it on Xbox. It was worth it. And so then I grinded on there. Started from scratch. Built my way up. So about 200 hours total between both. Right? Two, 250. Which sounds like a lot. It is a lot. It's a fuck ton of time. But it's not as much as some people. And so I beat the game. Um... And, and I did a lot of exploring, folks. Like, I got a lot of stuff done. A lot of the quests, a lot. So, so that's part of it, too. You could mainline, just do the main bosses and push through and do the bare minimum and get some of the cool stuff. Probably beat it in 30 hours, depending on your skill level. But 30 to 50 hours, no problem. But um, that all that extra time was exploring. And I'm glad I did. Because now I can go into New Game Plus and really feel free to do whatever I want. I'm not even worried about choices and consequences of story i just want to make my guy stronger and explore areas i haven't seen because i could guarantee it games intricate enough there's shit i've missed tenfold that could probably fulfill another 60 hours of new content i didn't realize was there that's how intricate the game is it's interwining it's interlocked there's verticality and everything is fun to look at for long enough there's enough enemy diversity. Oh my god, there's so many different types of enemies. And even when you have to fight the same types of enemies, smaller spawns and such, they're really challenging and interesting to fight. And they're usually rewarding enough. 
and running past them after a while doesn't feel like you're negating anything and the way it encourages exploration is it it doesn't constrict you there's no markers unless you set one the map is barren it's got the sights of grace and it points you in general directions but you will stumble upon things you never thought you would just randomly just from walking around right it doesn't have i i don't know what it was i tried a oh yeah i i tried elder scrolls online for the first time on game pass be honest i tried it for a friend it's okay i'm not gonna say it's a bad game but it's not me it's just not me it's just first of all graphics are way out of date they need a overhaul on that if they're gonna continue players to but but that's not the end of the world Gameplay was a little stale. It's just press a button and it does an action. There's no intuition or or decisive actions in the combat, in my opinion. There's no freedom. There's no agency. Not really. You're bogged down. There's a bajillion markers on the map. The map is so, so much bigger than any other map I've ever played. Like, one region is as big as the Skyrim map. Don't get me wrong. Elden Ring's map is fucking huge. But this... Elder Scrolls is probably seven times bigger than that. And the problem is, it's not interesting. It's not pretty. It's not as pretty. Uh, there are, it's not, I'm not taking away from it from people who enjoy it. It's just not me. Just lots of quests. I had to, for the first hour, I shit you not, for the first hour, majority of the time, I had to walk back and forth to talk to people to accept quests. To fill my quest log so I can finally go and do shit. And all the shit I was doing was mundane. Pick up these keys. Go back to that person. Fast travel was hardly there. Some You could summon a horse, but it wasn't very intuitive. And you were slower. See, Elden Ring got rid of that shit. You don't have to talk to people if you don't want to. There, there are certain points where you have to that progress the main story. It takes 10 seconds to talk to them. You don't have to come back, but when you do come back... Yeah, people wanted... People did say they wish they had like a journal that kept a general track of things. I'm glad I didn't. I didn't want any in-game stuff to tell me exactly what I had to do. I feel too obligated to try to go check off that box. There's no boxes. There's nothing to check off. There's no... Th- I mean, you have to go on your own volition. If you want that sword that you saw on YouTube or that your friend has, you have to fucking find it. Now, you can look it up, but that means you cre- create your own quests. You truly have the freedom to explore at your own volition. You want to go fight this boss that's way too powerful for you? Yeah, sure, take a stab at it. You will die a bajillion times. It'll take you three hours, but if you want to try it, go try it. If you don't, if you're not ready, go. Kill some smaller enemies. Fight an easier boss. Get some cool stuff. Come back. Kill them. It allows you to play and explore at your own volition. It is truly a sandbox that is intricately designed and is meant to kill you at every turn. That's how you do a good game, in my opinion, in open world. But going back to the E3 stuff... Which, I'm sorry, once again, huge tangent. But when I first saw them present this game, open world, I'm like, man, it looks cool, but oh god, I hope they don't lose the pace. Now, why did they choose an open world? I was scared it was because someone was forcing them, Ben Dynamco was forcing them to try it because everyone else was jumping on. I don't think that was the case. I think it was they wanted to try it because they thought that this game was deserving of that. It needed that. It couldn't have done what it did as not an open world. That's why it's so unique. Right? And going back and playing older from software games, they feel so much more linear than they 
than they actually are. They're not that tight. They're not that restrictive. They're pretty free. You have freedom of choice to an extent, but not nearly as much as this game. So that's that's what I think, personally, that's what I excel in when it comes now. That's what I'll look for. And there's only two games that have actually pulled it off that I've heard of, and that's Zelda Breath of the Wild, Legends of Zelda Breath of the Wild, and, and Elden Ring. Those are the only two games on the market. And I hope more follow suit. But my point is, all in all, that these games are pressured. These E3 demos are deceptive. Also, these studios have to make E3 demos from scratch or have a separate team do them in minimal time. We're talking a couple hours worth of a gameplay demo. And it can take them two or three months, which takes a core group of people from building the actual game away all to market it and it's not an actually true showing of a game it's a bite-sized sample built usually from the ground up from the assets of course i mean it's still relatively true to what the game will be but it's not actually a chunk of the game it's not like the first 30 minutes of the game or it's not like a you know what i mean sometimes it is but usually it's actually built for the purposes of marketing cgi trailers guys cgi trailers they have to build in-house usually they don't have someone else build it for them so that takes a lot of time and resources that's a fuck ton of money they're pretty. They're cool. Sometimes they're good, especially for a story-based game. But if it's not in-engine gameplay, why are we watching it? I get it. A little promo, a little teaser here and there is just fine. But, like, why are we... Um, we, we can't trust a CGI trailer. It's not how the game will look. Never is. Never is. I mean, what's that new... Acolyte? Star Wars Acolyte? Is that what it's called? Or am I tripping? That new one from... The makers of Detroit Become Human, I believe. It had... Eclipse. I'm sorry, not Acolyte. What's that from? That's a new Star Wars thing. But um, Eclipse is a new Star Wars game coming out in like 2025 or something. It is the best CGI trailer I've ever seen in my life. It is so cinematic. I swear to God, I thought it was a Star Wars movie when I first saw it. And it looks incredible. Honestly, I would be fine if that was just a CGI movie or TV series. That's how good it looks. I don't need a game. But it's more story-based, less gameplay-focused. So if it looks like that and it's a good written story with some gameplay elements. But apparently it's this huge open-world narrative Star Wars game taking place in the, I think, High Republic area. And holy fuck, it looks... Era, not area. It looks great. It's a CGI trailer. We're three to four years out from knowing what the game will actually be like. It's those kinds of things, people, we got to look out for. And E3 has unfortunately created a culture of rushing. Rush to get that demo on the floor so people have an idea. Rush to get them hyped so we can sell products. It's unfortunate. It's not always the case. And the general influence of E3 is still important because the idea of the camaraderie of the pros I've listed is key. But the cons are exceptionally large because it is a showroom now that just promotes games that sometimes games you don't even need to see at E3 like we don't need to see Call of Duty at E3 I'm sorry we know what's coming just post the trailer online that's just not necessary you know what I mean I like the showcases that really have the creators on stage or have the showroom floor that show us new games in the works and I like when they present stuff that isn't five years away or four years away 
Are you shitting me? Four years away? That's too long, people. That's an entire presidential term. Four years. That's an entire college and or high school uh, career. On average. So, in four years? You're telling me by the time I'm 26, this game's coming out? What the fuck? Guys, eight years for Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk was initially announced when I was 14. 15. 14 and 15. I was 21 when it came out. Or 20. About to turn 21. That's ridiculous, people. I'm still excited. Still maintained hype. It's a good job on their part in terms of marketing. Because they still kept me hooked that long. I didn't forget that that game existed. That's hard. There's a bunch of games I forget that exist. And I'm reminded last minute. And I stay plugged in, so it's different for people who don't. Diablo 4, like I keep mentioning that, it's been a decade since the last Diablo came out. So, you know, there are certain things where people will wait because games take a long time. And anything can disrupt a game process. And as we know, in these past two to three years, COVID alone has disrupted the entire industry in terms of the production of games, quality assurance. And then, of course, all these acquisitions completely shift things. I guarantee you anything Activision or Blizzard, you better expect a three to five year difference in delay and quality downgrade. Because you have COVID and then, of course, Microsoft buying them is a whole process that takes a few years to really get into. Early 2020 is when Bethesda got acquired and we still haven't seen anything from anything new of substance from them post acquisition. Because that's just how long it takes to get all the... Uh, ducks in a row and get things truly transferred and processing it won't be a couple more years until we see a Bethesda Microsoft game from you know that's finished from the Starfield Starfield will be that Starfield even though it started development and they've been working on it for a decade and trying to figure it out that's that's the beauty of it we'll see hopefully Okay, so those are some of the cons. I know I went on a huge tangent about Elden Ring, as I often do, but those are the cons. There are the demos, the rushing, the marketing. As important as it is, it's often the priority. So let's get into conclusions and the future of what E3 and the meaning of it all is. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for joining me. I know this is a long episode, long, long, singular segments without much pause. You know me, I can just go on for a bajillion hours. So, um, I know this is about E3, but this incorporates, you know, a lot of the industry, and um, of course I go on tangents about specific games and franchises, as I do. So, I might be beating a dead horse if you've listened to a lot of my podcasts, but I don't think it is. I think it's all interconnected and important to an extent. I feel like... I felt when I was 15, right now, today, this year, 2022, I'm 22, by the way, but I I feel like I did when I was 15, because um, it's just one of those things where it's really interesting to me that it's June, we've had a lot of hype and publicity 
around new games and new IP, right? It's that time, summer. For films and television in general, they're just like, oh, here's the stuff coming out in fall and winter and next year and in five years, right? And that's fine. Uh, and that's what we're gearing up for. So E3 is no more. I started that. I started this with that. So you're like, why the fuck is he talking about E3 so long if it doesn't exist? Because it doesn't exist as E3, but it's still there showcasing games and it's important and i think actually we're going to hit a new point that is better for the industry but not entirely improved and what i mean by that is microsoft sony nintendo and a handful of other specific publishers will have their own day and date to present what they see fit now here's why this is good the benefits of that is you're not competing with every other person to have a sliver of the limelight you're not paying an exorbitant amount of fees into being there and to setting up a booth and to having your game shown and highlighted and, and reviewed and stuff. You're still paying, but you're not paying as much if it's your own event. Microsoft doesn't have to pay as much now. Sony doesn't have to pay as much. They have to compete for this on, you know, even though they're on different days, everyone compares who had the best showcase, right? From main publishers or main studios. And... That's fine, they have a little natural competition sprinkled in there, but that's there already. They're already trying to sell better than other people, so that's not really necessary. That actually adds more money and time lost on developing the fucking games. And that's an issue. <laughs> Marketing and promotion is great and all, but if you utilize it too much, if you lean into making more money, marketing and advertising and all of that you have to do it it's important but if you do it so much to a point where the quality and the financing and the time it would take to make the game is lost then what are you doing because unlike a movie unlike a tv show even unlike a book unless it's a series unless it's a tv show series that goes on for forever but my point is unlike those especially movies we're comparing movies even with movie franchises. Movies, going to a movie is a one-time event. If you love it, you go again, or you watch it again, or buy it, or whatever. But it's a one-time viewing. If they just get your butt to sit in the seat and watch it for two hours, you're good. They've done their job. And that's really hard, by the way. That is not an easy task. That is so fucking difficult, you don't even want to know. But the point is, that's what you gotta do. A video game? You have to make sure it works... A film can't be released if it isn't working. Like, if the codex file doesn't transfer, you can't edit it. You can't process it. You can't distribute it. If it doesn't work, it doesn't ship. It literally is a very simple block. You can't patch it and be like, oh, it kind of works. No, no, it has to work. Like, if the actual projectionist or the screening room or the digital projector screening your film doesn't work or... If the file you send isn't compatible, it ain't plain. You know what I mean? So you make sure it does, so it gets seen. It's very simple. Whereas a game, since it's so much more intricate in its technical mechanics, especially from a user interaction standpoint, it could work just fine. In fact, the bulk of it could work great. And then parts of it doesn't all of a sudden because there are areas that you just couldn't cover, especially in a bigger game with more intricate mechanics and, ex and expansive uh, regions or whatever. That's natural. People understand that. Gamers understand that. No one's going to be throwing stones at somebody if there's a little bug here, a little bug there, something doesn't quite work. 
especially now that we have patching and it can be fixed in a couple months. Here's the thing. First off, it can't be so detrimental the game can't be played. It can't be game-breaking. It can't close the game a bajillion times. It can't grind your frame rate to a screeching halt. It can't give you simple poly polygon shapes that you can't make out the geometric you know, proportions. It can't delete your files on your PC. You know what I mean? It can't delete the save progress of the game you're playing. It can't uninstall itself. And you think I'm making this shit up. This has happened to high quality games out there. The whole Batman Arkham Knight. No. One of them. The third Batman game. High caliber. Really well received on consoles. It's one of the only instances where it actually played better on consoles. Hands down. PC port came out. It was buggy, it was glitchy, it hardly worked. And there are cases where it deleted people's files on their PC. Not game files. Actual fucking work and other things they had on their PC. That's huge. That's a lawsuit. <laughs> That's big fuck up. You know what I mean? So those things can happen. It's not that they want them to happen. They just sometimes slip through the cracks. Sometimes quality assurance isn't good enough. Sometimes I don't know. I don't always know the... The, the reasoning behind it, but I do know it happens and it's a problem. So when, when you dedicate more money and time and marketing, you lose the time and money to develop the game and make it polished. So that's why sometimes when you don't hear from a game for a while and you hear enough to know that they're working on it and they're working hard on it, it's okay. It really is. I, I, think, I think that's okay. I mean, I think it's important for community engagement to show that in community, in general, outreach for the game developers to at least so you know what they're working on and to know that they're working at something. But a simple tweet, roadmaps, people, roadmaps are helpful for a reason. They're not just to announce DLC content you have to make people pay for. it. They're to reassure them this is what you're aiming for. And they have to be well thought out, too. And you have to execute on them. These are simple things to me. I'm telling you, I could run a game studio, even though I don't know how to develop a game. <laughs> I could run. I can at least be community manager. Um, no, but my my point is that I think um, I think E three in its essence is important, and we still have it. Xbox, Bethesda has their showcase. Sony will have their showcase. Certain publishers and studios will have theirs. Ubisoft, EA, and inevitably. Sometimes it's all online. Sometimes it's in person. Usually it's in person and then they live stream it and then they put all the trailers on their channels. That's fine. I like that. And they, everyone breaks it down for the week and we all know what we're going into and we, and we leave happy. I do hope that now that E3's gone, it reduces the necessity for publishers to force developers to have playable demos and perfect cinematics. Maybe to have one or two. Right? But only if it doesn't completely take away from the ability to make the fucking game. We're talking months and months taking away from core developers and millions of dollars taken away from the development cycle, depending on the scale of the game, I guess. Just to do that. I like to see more indie games and panels and developers in the big, re- in the big leagues while all that traffic's going on. not there. I mean, they have their own things and conferences, and that's great, but in the month of Jan- June, with that traffic, with that energy that everyone else is bringing, 
I'd like to see shorter release date windows. Albums are finally learning about this. Movies, to an extent, are too. There are a handful of movies that have surprised me because we just see a trailer and then it's like coming out later this year. I'm like, okay. Or even coming out one year from now. You know? Even if I know it's been in development because I'm a movie guy. Like Avatar 2. Super excited for that. I know it's been in development for over a decade. So it's been a long time. But they've been shooting, actually, they've been filming and making Avatar 2, 3, and 4. Or at least 2 and 3. All at the same time. So that's partially why it took so long. And then technological hurdles. A bunch of stuff. It took way too long. It shouldn't have taken as long as it did. But I'm getting over that because now it's coming out this December. They didn't show the trailer. They showed the first teaser, graphics, and all of it of the second Avatar in May, last month. That's smart. They didn't show some teaser seven years ago. That would have been disappointing. You know what I mean? So at least they did it like that. I like when games do that. It always surprises me when I see a Call of Duty trailer in the summer and a teaser. I'm like, okay. I still get excited about them. At least to see what's, what's up with the new one. Because they have three, two to three year dev cycles. Usually. Usually. They don't always meet that, but they try to. So Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2022, or Modern Warfare 2, however you want to call it, has had a three year dev cycle. In fact, it probably had some of its dev cycle already kind of pushed into gear with Modern Warfare 2019's creation. Right, the groundworks were started at least. If not, maybe some of the game was already in. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how hard it is to make a Call of Duty. But it's coming out in October. They had the first teaser last week. They're having another in, on June 8th. They're having the full trailer and reveal and all that. But they have the release date. October 28th of this year. That's not too long away. Now, I know they're an annual thing. And we're getting to the point where we were going to see this. We knew in 2019 that in 2022 we'll get Modern Warfare 2. We knew that. But still, it's just one of those things where I'm like, I like that they didn't show us something last year. And say in two years. That's just, no, it's not fun. Um... The new Jedi Fallen Order, the uh, Jedi Survivor, I think is what it's called. Sequel to Jedi Fallen Order. Came out in 2019 as well. Uh, it's coming out next year, and I think it's coming out in March of next year. So that's not very long at all. That's less than a year away. If it's a year, a little over a year, I'd say 15 months or less, that's pretty good for me. If they deliver on it, if they don't delay it a million times. I like to see that. It's not that I, I know they're making a new game, and I sometimes can tell it's a sequel. I just knew that Respawn was working on the sequel. But they didn't show me anything. I didn't see anything. I, I didn't know exactly. So, I like that. I hope that at these showcases, we see more games with definite release dates that are closer than maybe we thought. Because at certain points, when you keep delaying a game, and you're like, oh, it's coming out eventually. Oh, no, no, no. I don't care. You just you lose faith in me after probably after four to five years, depending on the scale of the game. I'll be patient, but after four or five years, I'm like, really, really, you couldn't figure it out this much time. I'm sorry. 
unless you have a genuinely decent explanation. I, I don't know how I can keep enthused about this because there's other things coming out that I would much rather play because I know they're going to come out and I know sometimes they're going to deliver on what they say they will. So it just depends. Depends on the studio. Depends on who's presenting. So I hope that this year, and we have the Game Awards show that now in the in the winter time, so that highlights some new stuff. So it's becoming more and more versatile in how we know when games are coming out. Getting trailers, getting hyped online, that's the most accessible way, and that's key. But I think having these showcases are helpful. They're exciting. I look forward to seeing them. I look forward to I'm not going to watch them uh, at all. By that, I mean, like, I'm not going to watch... Not at all. I'm not going to watch all of them, and I'm not going to watch them all at once or all at... Like, I I don't sit and watch the entire five-hour live stream. I don't have time for that. I'll catch 20 minutes of it, maybe 30 minutes of it each day or whatever. I'll catch the most important highlights, and then I'll go back and I'll watch the individual trailers and look at the list of the games that excite me. I'll do some research. I'll watch some of my favorite YouTubers break it down. I'll get my information, and I'll learn more over time. And if I'm really interested, I'll go back and watch a live stream, catch that segment. I, I don't have the time to sit and watch the whole thing. I just don't. I prioritize my time differently, but I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to see the notifications. So, here's to hoping that all works out. Here's to hoping that the future of marketing and advertising games stays true to the actual game that comes out, that developers and publishers are given the time and resources to make quality games where at a point where independent studios and now with Unreal Engine 5 independent people can make better games than AAA studios and while that's great that they're making great games AAA studios have more money than God themselves they shouldn't be stuck Bethesda by no means should be we should be we should not be playing Bethesda games that feel like they came out in 2012 they should be three to five years ahead of what any other game could play like You know, conformity and comfort, all that creates uh, uh, an environment where they feel like they don't have to change because they're not threatened. Rockstar isn't going to change. I'm sorry. GTA 6, it, it may come out, but it, it's not going to be like the most revolutionary thing ever. I hope it is, but I don't think it's going to be too different. I think it's going to be bigger scale, better graphics, some new, new gameplay elements maybe, new physics, hopefully a new engine. Red Dead 2 is incredibly uh, well done and a much better step up from Red Dead 1. But it still played like a Rockstar game, just a little better. And that's okay, maybe that's just their style. It's just not me anymore. But my point is that it's really one of those things where GTA 5 has been out for almost a decade. It's making more money than ever. They have their own online subscription. It's still getting content updates. They've remastered and re-released this game so much. I played it quite a bit. But between GTA 4 and GTA 5, I don't think it was 10 years. I think it was 4 or 5 years. They're comfortable where they are. And maybe it's really hard what they're doing. Maybe they're doing something revolutionary. Maybe GTA 6 will be out for 20 years. I hope not. That's just too long. The industry changes so quickly, that's not going to be fun. So here's to hoping the future of games is bright and it's not as microtransaction heavy. It's not as for the profit, not for the people. Unfortunately, a lot of our world is, and unfortunately the gaming industry is not not shy of that, but hopefully 
the money, the people will speak first. Because when the people don't like it and don't play it anymore, you lose your money. So that's also one good thing about um, video games. So here's the hoping that we see some substantial changes since E3 is no more. Thank you all for joining, and I appreciate it. Till next time.